Okay, today I'm in the Star Sports Mayfair office with betting shop manager of the year 2022, James Maloney. Congratulations, James, and uh, thanks very much for taking time out to talk to us. Thanks, Simon. Uh, it's just sort of sinking in still. It's all a bit of a shock uh, Monday, but um, yeah, brilliant. Brilliant for the company and brilliant for me. Yeah, fantastic. And um, so obviously I've been here a lot of times doing these sort of interviews. And you're manager of the Star Sports shop here. How long have yeah. you been here? Uh, it'll be six years in January I've been here. I came as number two to uh, Matt Davies, who's uh, now our head of retail. Uh, yeah, so the two of us just built the shop up. Uh, as we got busier and busier, we got more staff in. Uh, it feels like it's only been two years, but I know we've had two years of COVID sort of, so I know we were open and closing and open and closing, but it's flown, to be honest with you, Simon. Okay, the past 18 months, sorry, I've been uh, managing it here now, Matt, like I say, Matt's moved on and I'm the manager here for the yeah, past 18 months. And if anybody doesn't know where it is, it's in quite a prestigious little spot, isn't it? Just yeah. around the corner from the Dorchester. Yeah, it's hidden away a little bit. Uh, you have to know where it is to find it or you can Google your address, but um, it is a nice area, very nice. Yeah, and if you find the Dorchester, you keep walking past. Yeah, it, you find it. Yeah. So you, but you've earned, <coughs> you've got this award, but you've earned your stripes. I mean, how long have you been working in the betting shop game? Since '96. So what's that? 26 years. You know, coming on for 27, it'll be a uh, long time. Um, I started off at Corals in '96 in uh, Thornton Heath, South Croydon. Uh, yeah, South London. Sorry, uh, as a cashier, just my first job. Uh, absolutely loved it. Knew a bit about gambling already, so I was already sort of a little bit ahead of just someone walking in who hadn't a clue. Uh, I know how to settle bets and stuff like that. Uh, just it, the whole place, I loved it. The manager was so good, the staff were all good. Loads of customers, it was a really busy shop. I think it was one of the flagship shops for uh, Coral in London. Um, yeah, just loved it. Hit the ground running. Uh, quickly decided I wanted to be a deputy manager and go on to managers. So got to learn how to settle more. Little trip away to Dorking, to the White Horse in Dorking. We had four days away for a settling course, which was quite fun. Uh, came back and then obviously, once I passed them tests, uh, I was a second settler on a Saturday. And we just, uh, yeah, it was great fun. I loved it. So okay. many regular customers, you know, we knew them all. Uh, uh, Union Jack Pete was a fellow, used to come in every payday with a wad of Union Jacks. And it was all out of town dogs which was a nightmare to settle because you were back page of the post every morning. It would take a good half hour of all his bets. But he's, if you can find one, five and nine, we're, we're losers. The whole bet was a loser. So, uh, yeah, just loads of regular customers. It's good fun. OK, we're going to go into more depth in your, your career in a bit, but I want to go back to your background. So mm -hmm. where, you know, where, where are you from? What's the, uh, what's the James story? Um, well, I've lived in South London all my life. My parents, both Irish. Uh, so I consider myself Irish as well. Some people would say if you were born here, you're not, but I've got Irish blood in me, so that's Irish to me. Uh, yeah, parents owned an off-licence, uh, just grew up in Streatham, uh, sort of, well, Streatham too, in Borders. Uh, I used to go home back to Ireland. First day of every summer holiday, my parents would put me on a plane. I'd be a lonely flyer because I was only about eight or nine, so my aunt would be at the other end to pick me up and I'd spend every day of the summer holidays back over there in Ireland just sort of playing around, I'd play more cousins over there and that. So, yeah, it was good. It was good, good childhood. I loved it. Was there any racing in Ireland, any racing sort of stuff in Ireland? Not in Ireland when I was that age. If I'd come back, if I wasn't there for the whole summer, I'd be off racing with my parents over here whenever they got a chance. They, well, my dad would always go, but sometimes he'd bring my mum, or I'd go with him as well whenever possible. 
but my mum preferred it if she went as well, just because my dad would go running off looking for prices. He used to be the quickest guy on. You'd see him, we'd sit there watching him running along all the bookies, and he'd get 13 to 2 if it was available, so and it was 6s elsewhere. He'd come back and go, yeah, I've got 13 to 2. And so, your dad was quite a good punter. Yes, yes. As, as in the winning shrewd punter. Yeah, he, he wasn't a big staking punter or anything, but he read the form and he knew the form. Uh, yeah, he had his f- couple of trainers he'd follow. Um, he also owned a couple of dogs in the early 80s at Maidstone, so he used to really like his dog racing. Wasn't wealthy enough to be involved in horse racing uh, ownership, but um, he was in partnership with uh, the local greengrocer, the guy that ran that, Johnny. The two of them bought three or four dogs, I think, that ran at Maidstone. Uh, so they were there quite a lot as well. I used to go with them on a Sunday to take the dogs for a walk and that across the fields. It's great fun. So was he? He was interested in betting and racing and dogs when you were growing up. So yeah. you grew up with all that. Interest. Oh yeah, yeah. He was always reading the paper. Always like got the. Whenever there was racing on TV, it was always on. There was a bookies a few doors down. He was always uh, running, sending me down there to put bets on for him. I mean, it's only because he knew the book. The bookie knew who I was. He was like, yeah, come in, put a bet on. In them days, you could, like, you couldn't do that now. Uh, yeah, so it's just always been there in my life. And you were, you didn't have any sort of that. That wasn't like a, oh, I want to be a betting shop manager from that early age. No, it was just. I mean, I loved sport and loved horse racing, and obviously having dogs. Uh, I just loved the whole aspect of it. But no, I wouldn't. I didn't know what I wanted to be at that age. Probably a footballer or a cricketer or something like that. Um, but unfortunately, not good enough for uh, any sport. Sort of master, master, was it master of all trades, jack of none. I mean, he's pretty good at all, but never sort of made it too far in any of them. But your dad used to take you racing and grand racing. Yeah, yeah. Were you enthusiastic or were you dragged there originally? No, no, very enthusiastic. Um, we'd be at Wimbledon Dogs at least sort of twice a week in the sort of mid to late 80s. He'd, he'd be going all the time. I'd go on a Saturday normally when there was no school the next day or whatever. Um, he would have the programme, but he wouldn't even need to leave to look at it because he'd have been to every race he'd pretty much seen. So he'd, he'd pick out dogs that he thought were unlucky, like he'd, having seen them run a track on track. And then so he'd know when it's running again and he'd be on it. So those were the, the mid-80s. I mean, I mm. never went, but everybody sort of goes misty-eyed and says they were the halcyon days. I mean, yeah. What was it like in those days? That was great. It was obviously just a tote lady. One of my cousins got a job. She'd come over from Ireland and she got a job there working there for uh, six months or so. Um, that was another community place. The same old guys were there. Um, my dad knew them all. Uh, I used to love it because you could just sort of wander around and you, you know, there's never any trouble or anything. I was, I was never in any danger or anything, so you'd just let me walk off and do whatever and then give me a couple of quid where you'd go and put some bets on for me. Um, but I was just have a little bet and watch him again, like running, well, it was only six bookies, I think, at the time, but he'd be still getting the best value wherever he could. He wouldn't, he wouldn't bet on every race. He'd say that was a mugs game, betting on every race, so he'd be there to back four or five horses, uh, dogs, sorry. Uh, yeah, it was just great. Then in the evening, like uh, late in the evening, the seafood man would be round in his basket, load of seafood, so I'll have some cockles or whelks or something like that. And then going home, as you left the stadium on a Saturday night, the Sunday papers were for sale, so we'd always get the paper going home so I could go home and read all the football results and that, because we had no mobile phones and stuff like that in the day, so then you could read the reports and that. Just the whole thing was brilliant. And you said that your dad owned some greyhounds, so how successful was he with those? Uh, not so much from what I remember at Maidstone. Um, it was more, it was just a hobby, nothing, nothing really good. Then he, in the 90s, he had a couple at Catford. Uh, it didn't last long, because one of them got injured early on. 
that was a good dog, Big Demand, that was called, that one. It was climbing the grades anyway, but just had a bad injury. So kind of put him off, so he sold the other one and uh, he just kept, he just sort of returned back to just being a punter rather than an owner. Now you mentioned to me well, you, when I was asking you a little bit about your background, I was intrigued by the Grand National, I assume it's the Grand National coup, is it? Yeah, um, that was in 99, Bobby Joe, that's still probably my favourite race of all time. Um, he got word from home in Ireland that it was going for the National and they had a really good chance. The Carberries are from sort of a town very close to where my dad sort of grew up and all our family are, so everyone in that area knew it, um, that it was uh, being aimed at the National, so he was on it at like 33s, 28s, so was I by the way, but not to his stakes, 33s, 28s, 25s, 20s, I think I was even on it at 16s in a few days pr uh, prior. Um, so I was working in Coral still, second settling. I was meant to be settling the places on that race. But uh, I told everyone in the shop for about a week beforehand, all the staff, all the punters, all the regulars, I said, Bobby Joe's winning the national. None of them took any notice of me. So I'm the only one in the shop. I think a couple of people might have had a fiver on it. But I'm behind the counter in the shop watching Bobby Joe win the national, screaming the place down. And then I was, my hands were shaking after. It was my biggest ever win at the time. And then suddenly I got lumped with these pile of place bets to settle. And I was like... <laughs> just shaking. So in the end, my manager just went, give me that, go and have a drink. So he sent me to the pub. He said, you're so no what, good. What sort of figures were you talking about then? Oh, no, it wasn't big for me, but it was 20s at 33s, 20s at 28s. You no, know, add it yeah, up. Nice yeah, quid, yeah. And then I think I had about 40 or 50 quid on it at 20, yeah, 20s. So it was a two and a half grand, something like that, which was, for me, I was only 21, well, 22 at the time, 21. Um, it was good. I did have a good few beers that night then. Did you do the... Um the traditional Clark's thing when you fancy one and make sure it was a you lent for it in the shop or was that not in your um, jurisdiction? No, that wasn't. I mean, uh, well, what can I say? I didn't. I didn't uh, know. Did um, and, and once you'd had that good win, did you sort of open your shoulders a bit as far as punting went? I mean, how's your punting been? Uh, I used to be quite shrewd at horses. I'd follow my dad in on things. I mean, we always used to back Fanshawe in the summer at sort of uh, Goodwood and stuff like that, and the big handicaps, and we had some nice touches there. I can't remember, we had Frizzanti one year, uh, and another about 10, 12 to 1 winner. I can't remember if it's Soviet something now, off the, top, off the top of my head, I can't remember. But I'd follow him, I'd follow him in. I'd have the odd football bet, but they were just sort of for a bit of fun and that. I didn't really get into punting that much, I didn't increase my stakes that much. Did working in a betting shop and seeing the mistakes that people make make you a better punter or did it make you sort of did you put you off punting a bit or uh it did i mean there were still shrewd punters when i was working in in the shops you know so you follow them in even today now we've got shrewd punters here in mayfair so you might follow the odd person in because you know they're getting some well or they've studied the form or they're getting some good info but yeah you see people doing doing their load or whatever and you think well you feel for them as well you know so you don't ever want to be in that position yourself. I have been to a position where once or twice I've sort of halfway through the month I've run out of money because I've sort of punted it away. I've been a bit too reckless and then you think I'm not doing that again. Hey, I want to go to the beginning of your career where you, you, you said that you worked at Corals and you worked under some great managers. Um, you know, what, made, what made them great as managers and what did you learn from them? Taking going forward to your career. Okay. Yeah, uh, they were probably one of the two of the most influential managers I had. Purely 
because I started in the game and I didn't know how a betting shop run from behind the jump rather than just like being a punter. So it was all till checks and stuff like that. They were extremely thorough in what they'd done. They made sure all the staff were aware of everything about the game. Uh, the shops were always immaculate. They both created a, an, a really good environment and a relationship between punters and staff. And it was just like, this is how a shop should be run. Like I say, it was one of the most uh, flagship shops. Uh, the first manager was Peter Lamorvan. He then got promoted to the George Street Croydon one, which was a, an even busier shop. And then Ray Carey came along and he just slotted straight in the same, the same ethos. And it's just something I've tried to match wherever I've been, you know, get my staff all on side, make sure the shops are completely as they should, they look as they should, and that there's a good relationship between uh, punters and uh, staff. So you started as a cashier, so yeah. basically just taking the bets. Um, but, yeah. they, but they employed someone that was interested in racing. Yeah. Do you think that's changed these days? Um, it, I think it probably has actually, yeah, because a lot of the skills gone out of it. Obviously, you don't have to settle bets anymore. Um, it's a lot of just pressing buttons. I mean, a lot of people say they're just key holders now. You walk in, open the door, flick a few switches, and log on to your till, and that's all you're doing. And I have seen that in quite a lot of shops. So there are still some shops out there where um, you want to go and have a bet. I mean, there's a couple I would bet in, but there's a vast majority I wouldn't. Uh, it's just the way it is, I think, unfortunately. Okay, so what did you t take from them and change the first shop where you became a manager? Where was that? Well, Ray actually then got promoted somewhere to area manager, so I applied for the uh, Thornton Heath shop, but they said it was too busy a shop for me as my first shop, which was ridiculous because I'd ran it for about three months between the, the new manager coming along and it had been fine, everything was fine, company politics. So there was a small shop in Streatham, Greyhound Lane, the manageress from there, she got the gig for Thornton Heath and I got to go to her shop and run that one. It was completely different because it was a lot quieter. I mean, I'd gone from doing like 1,500 bets on a Saturday to four or 500 on a Saturday. Uh, there was a lot less custom. It was a lot less of a smaller shop. So all, all I, regarding what did I bring with it, I just carried on their beliefs and just making sure the staff all knew what they were doing and the shop was set up and always open on time, etc. Uh, it was just the same. Was there um, like a financial benefit for being in a busy shop? Was it like bonus scheme, that sort of thing? Or was it that cushy to be put to a, a quiet shop? No, there was a bonus scheme. There'd be like a, an FO, uh, FOBC, not then, AWP machine. If you, if you got your fruit machines, uh, you'd get a small bonus. But we weren't talking massive bonuses or anything. I mean, I think the biggest one I ever got for a good six-month period in the shop was about 150 quid in them days which was still good money, don't get me wrong. That's probably one of the highest I ever got until I came to Star. When you, um, so you've got, you've got your first shop as a manager. That is that, at that time, is that then, this is what I want to do, this is my career? Uh, yes and no. I, I did love the game, I love sports betting, and I will love watching sport as well. They obviously had Sky Sports on the, in them days, so I got to sit there at work and watch sport. It's not uh, an excuse for not doing any work, but um, it's, it's a it's research. It's a bonus. <laughs> it's a bonus that it's on. So uh, I was still wasn't a hundred percent sure. It was still new to me, like working in the shops. So we're talking about four years then. I was working in the game. Uh, I think so, but I didn't want to stay in that shop. I wanted to go into a busy shop and test myself. Yeah. So you. But so I wanted to progress. So but you then you binned it and went travelling. Yeah, one of my mates was going travelling, and I thought. Do you know what? 
let me do it as well because we went to college together. I actually got him a job at Coral as my cashier so he could earn some money to take with him. So we worked for about six months and then he handed his notice in in sort of mid-October to late, yeah, mid-October I think it was. I finished on Boxing Day that year and we went travelling to Canada for the winter sports. We both snowboard, so we basically just went across the Rockies, Banff, Lake Louise, Jasper, for about three months. It was brilliant. And then uh, I dropped into America and went sort of worked my way across from South Dakota, across to Chicago and up to New York because I've got a cousin that works in New York. So I ended up going and staying there with him. Uh, I thought I might be able to get a job, but it was, what was that, 2002? So it was just after 9-11 and they cracked down on like, obviously all the illegal immigrants, so I needed a green card. I thought it would be easy, it wasn't. So money, I had a flat at that time, so it was renting it out, so I was getting money coming in, which helped, but it wasn't enough. So I was running low on funds as well, so I ended up having to jump on the flight back. Uh, just before the World Cup, so I think that was June. Yeah, World Cup 2002, yeah. It's lucky you went that way, because if you'd gone to Thailand, you'd never have come back, it'd be that cheap. <laughs> you went the expensive route, didn't you? Yeah. Right, so after your sabbatical, you're back into the business in Croydon. Yes, uh, like I say, I came back just for the World Cup. I stayed, I stayed, didn't go back to work until after the World Cup. I pretty much watched all of that. It was Japan, so there was a lot of early kickoffs. Um, Ireland got to the quarterfinals, was it? Got knocked out on penalties. I'll never forget that. Um, yeah, but after that, then it was like I need to get working again. So I called uh, the then area manager of Corals, uh, sort of for the whole sort of that Thames region area, who I knew. And within a day, I was back at work on relief. So he was like, yeah, we'll take you back. We haven't got a shop for you at the moment. But I sort of covered Croydon, three shops in Sutton. I sort of worked around there, Banstead. Uh, just, yeah, I was back there for a couple of months and the manager of George Street Croydon then went on a long-term sickness, so they just moved me straight in there. That was in sort of October, I think. He was off then until a week before Cheltenham, where he came back, but he only survived a month and then relocated down to Poole on the coast. So they just said, we want you to be manager. I didn't have to apply for it or anything. And there I was in arguably the busiest shop in South London for corals, managing mm. it, which is where I wanted to be anyway. But you experienced the worst the industry has to offer. Yeah, I mean, it was a great shop, really good, still more, more of a community uh, feel. But around that time, 2003, four or whatever it was, obviously Luna House was in uh, Croydon and all the asylum seekers were suddenly started arriving on coaches. Uh, I remember going to work one day and there was like three coach loads just sat outside at Luna House waiting to be processed. Um, I think they sort of got accommodation and a little bit of money and then they were just free to do whatever they want which normally involved them hanging around the fobs in bookies and begging, basically, uh, which was a nightmare in George Street. We would have, I think the machines were all together, and you just have a semicircle of six or seven of them just watching people play. And then the minute someone won, hand out, I gave you that number, I did this, I did that. So it was a constant battle to kick them out, basically. Uh, and then I'd be out, say if I'd be out, I don't know, even having to bet myself and they were in the other bookies, they'd come up and start hassling me or if I'd go out for a drink after work with friends and there was a, like some of them in the pub, they'd give me hassle. Uh, I ended up getting assaulted by one of them as well. Uh, he like grappled me and as I was ushering him out the door, or throwing him out basically because it had got to that stage, I was pulling the door shut and he took a running jump and my whole hand got caught in the door. 
So all my fingers there were just completely bleeding. Um, police were called. It was all due to go to court, and the day before it was going to court, it was yeah, the day before the CPS threw it out, just said there's no case to answer, we haven't got enough evidence, even though it was all on camera and everything. So kind of dismayed then. By that stage, I was just fed up of working for corals and in that area. I had no support from corals in that respect, no HR, no area manager. No one had sort of come to see if I was all right. I was just left to get on with it. Uh, constantly calling the police out regarding other customers like all these guys. Um, even the police stopped coming out. They were seriously understaffed in Croydon at the stage. Uh, so, yeah, I was just reaching the end of my tether, to be honest with you. And apart from that, obviously, nasty situation there, did, how much did the fixed odd betting terminals change the ambience of betting shops? Well, obviously, with that, I mean, I think 2002, I seem to remember them being in George Street. Uh, they were these little dumpy ones at the time, not like the ones we've got now. Um, used to open them in the evening and, like, notes would spring out. There were so many notes in it. People, like, you'd do a £100 spin at the time. People were just smashing money in them. Businessmen, like, that you wouldn't normally see in the betting shop were in there just feeding them, feeding them, feeding them. So it was, it was, it was new at first. It was like, I couldn't believe how much we were taking out of these machines. Uh, the ambience being, it, it brought a lot more people in and not, not racing people, which obviously put off a lot of racing people. They used to like start sitting in the shop, having a tea, watching the afternoons racing. But with people screaming and that, they seemed to drift off to other shops where it wasn't like not on a main street. So you could go to a smaller shop and I think they sort of preferred to do that. So it did change it quite a lot, to be honest with you. So from a business point of view, it was quite good because it brought in people that wouldn't normally have come in the shop yeah. and that you didn't tend to find that the racing people stopped betting on the 250 at Exeter and went to the fob tees or did uh, they did play them as well yeah they did as well they've really um, got a certain amount of money to lose haven't they so yeah I mean there was always the talk of when when are the fobs going to overtake the horses for profits because we'd always I think the first time we were looking it was sort of like 70 30 and you could see it slowly sort of creeping and then it flipped and it was the other way and it was all about the machines obviously uh, then like you could have uh, still have a few good punters into shop but not as many Yeah, so um, in 2007, I'd had enough. I think Operation Goliath came as well at Corals then when they tore up the contract and basically you had to sign a new contract or you were out, which I didn't want to sign it. I waited till the, one of the very last days, went to appeal, signed it begrudgingly and thought I'd definitely need a new challenge here. So I went looking for another job uh, in bookies though, but I found a better bet in Victoria and uh, spent an afternoon in there and I was like, this is a nice shop. So applied for a job there, got a job there. Uh, I was on relief. They only had a few shops, seven or eight, I think, at the time. They were trying to build their uh, sort of estate up at the time. They had just put a new till system in, or they were putting in a new till system. So I got involved in the training of that, which I found great. That was uh, Finsoft tills. So I got to visit all the shops and train the staff, which I found really rewarding. But well, I was also still on relief working in other shops as well. So I'd sort of do a mixture of both. And that was uh, really rewarding. Obviously, after a couple of years, they hit, hit a bit of trouble. Jennings Bet took them over. It was called a merger, but it was basically Jennings saving the company. They had, I don't know how many shops they were up to, 70 or 80. It might have even been more, 100. So they needed all their shops then moving on to our till system, the Finsoft. So that was another job for me. So I got to go around random places like Buntingford, which you wouldn't even know where it is. But I went and tra trained all the staff there. 
uh, just loads of different places. It was really good fun. Okay, so now 2017, you started working for Star Sports um, with Matt first of all, and then mm -hmm. as yourself. So it's fair to say the Mayfair shop is, I think most would agree, is like the Rolls Royce of betting shops. Um, does it still have its challenges for you as a manager? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, just different challenges, I suppose, to different shops. It is a fantastic shop. Uh, the clientele are obviously a lot uh, wealthier, I can say, or better off anyway. You know, they're, they're, they're well paid in their jobs, whatever that might be, may be. Um, we have to cater for their needs. You know, we have to look after them individually, make sure they're all uh, make like they know that we're looking after them and they feel important within the shop. Uh, Obviously, we take a few bigger bets here, so that's a different challenge as well. Obviously, we're not just going to take a massive bet off the street without speaking to our traders, but it's another different thing that we have to deal with. Okay, and so, I mean, obviously, taking aside the luxury aspect of this shop, how much things change now, where you are at this very minute, to when you first started? Uh, a hell of a lot, obviously. It's more of a battle to get people into the shops because of the apps on your phone, people, so many people just betting on like mobile, uh, online. Uh, so you do see the volume of, pun of punters in shops slowly reducing. So that would be a case for all shops, I'd imagine. We, we're all right because our customers sort of have afternoons off, they'll work in the morning and they'll come in here for the afternoon and they'll sit here for the period of the racing. Um, so we have still got our regulars, which is good. We can have 10, 12 in here just sitting in on an afternoon doesn't sound like a lot, but it is when they're all sitting there shouting across their bets on cricket or whatever. Yeah, and one of the b benefits you've got here, you do actually have to ring a doorbell. So you, yes. can, you can sort of filter out the riffraff if you want to. Well, you're always welcoming. We'll, we'll, we will buzz you in. <laughs> now, so do you, you still get the same sort of characters and community feel, even though they're that little bit better yeah, healed? I think so, yeah. Everyone knows everyone in here. All the punters know each other. And they all know what horses they're going to back as well, because he follows Appleby. Or, you know, he's a stout man. So they all know each other. And if an Appleby horse wins, they'll be like, Morris, you were on that or whatever. So, yeah, there is still a good community. And we're always having a laugh with them. I mean, we've got an open counter. So uh, we're just talking between each other. And it's uh, good fun, especially when there's sport on as well. The Spurs are playing and there's a Spurs fan in here. He'll get some grief, etc., etc. So what are you, So you make a point of actually getting to know the customers. Oh, yeah. So they're happy for you to know who they are, yeah. and a little bit about their lives and that sort of thing. Yeah, obviously we have to do uh, checks, the same as any shop stuff, you know, uh, POFs and, and proof of funds and all that. So yeah. we do know what bits and bobs. It's very private, it's kept very private anyway. It's only like the manager and our uh, team that will deal with that in head office. But they're, they're all very open in what they do anyway. I think they, they like to brag about it half the time. Okay, now one thing I found working as a working for a racecourse bookie was you really got to like your customers you'd have the same customers come and it was a bit difficult to sort of they you know there's a nice chap they used to come in and bet quite large and you'd know he was going to do his money and eventually he stopped coming how do you compartmentalize that with you build up relationships and you like your customers but you know deep down they've got to lose for this place to survive and you to earn your wages how do you deal with that side of it well that's still part of sort of the social responsibility side of it and the friendship side of it i mean if someone's in here we could have a guy who bets 50 quid a race or we do have customers who bet 50 pound a race and he could be like six seven hundred quid down in half an hour i'll go out and have a chat with him i mean it's good for the shop 
but it's also you know that person you will say come on, mate don't don't start chasing now the last thing you want to do is chase because chasers never win well maybe one one time in ten you'll get yourself out of trouble so there is that interaction with them and I do get what you're saying because you do like them and stuff but they they appreciate you saying that but then luckily here we've got customers who are fairly wealthy so no one sort of bets over than what they can afford and if they do we have had a couple who've taken a break and then they've returned and said yeah no it's fine and they've come back and bet a little bit smaller and a little bit less often. Have you, um, have you ever gone up to somebody and you said listen son do you know what I'm worth? Uh, you know sort of you've got too worried too soon um yeah i have said it and they've just said don't worry about me he says I i've just got a bonus for however much money and i'm like oh okay then fair enough <laughs> and um on the other side of it i mean have you had <coughs> customers that have come in here that are far too lively for you and you've had to sort of politely decline their business yeah you're always going to get that in uh, in the game aren't you um we like to lay a, a bet, but it has to be at the right price. So if someone's coming in in the morning wanting a price where we're completely out with everyone else, he'll probably be offered a reduced, uh, well, definitely a reduced state, or we'll probably just say, no, you can have this at the price we want. So it does still happen. Yeah, would, would, the, um, would the limits here be a bit higher than they would be in your normal betting shop? Yeah, yeah, they would be. Not so much morning business. There's still You've got to still be wary of the morning business, but during the afternoon, yeah, the limits are higher. So we do lay some big bets, especially for my regulars, without having to uh, put them through to the trading or anything like that. Now, back in my uh, back in my youth, there was always a magnificent story on a Saturday where somebody's wandered into a hill shop in some obscure part of London with a suitcase full of money and asked what Wogan's winner was that day. <laughs> I mean, I found out since that, that was probably a brilliant PR ruse. But does that sort of thing ever happen? Have you had somebody come, you know, anyone come in with a huge amounts of money that they've tried to they've tried to have on? Uh, yeah, yeah, we've had, I mean, uh, if they want a lot, we'll obviously speak to the traders. We can do transfers, like bank transfers, rather than the actual cash now. It's a much more modern world we're in than, people still say cash is king, and I have had people come in here for like 30,000 30, in cash, wanting to put it on a football match or something like that. But limits we've got now on, you know, proof of funds, you can't have more than a, a couple of grand. You can't have a 25 grand bet, or sorry, more than 25 without showing us where this money's coming from and even if it's in casino sealed bags we still need proof yeah that must be quite frustrating if in this position that's exactly what you're hoping to get isn't yeah it? yeah but if people want to build a relationship with us then they know they're going to have to provide these details at first and then it's going to be fine going forward it's not a problem okay now this question wasn't on the sheet but i'm not going to throw you a flanker you were talking to me about you've won betting shop manager of the year now how does somebody become I know they have to vote you as, as it, but I mean, what, what's the process? Uh, you apply yourself. Back in the day, when, I was, when it first started out, or when I first started out, they used to get nominated by a customer, but uh, they changed that. I don't know when they changed it, so you put yourself forward. I know the big companies, they pick some one person from each region and they're told to apply, whereas as an independent, we're all encouraged to apply. Every shop, so we've got 19 shops, so one's just open. So we'd have had 18 applicants this year. Uh, two of us got through to the final 48, which is sort of the first cut-off stage. Then they have a, a mystery shopper, and that will then bring it down to 24 people. The 24 will then go to Doncaster for a day at the races. Uh, on the Friday night, sorry, the Thursday night, you go up and have dinner in Doncaster. I think we stayed in Bantry, a nice hotel there. Uh, 
have dinner with the judges, so you get to know them, and then on the Friday you go to the race course, do a, a small video interview, and again, just interact with the judges. After that, they then pick the regional winners, so you go down to the final eight, uh, which is that's what gets you onto the final day, which happened on Monday, so eight of us were left. Uh, we had to do another brief bio before that, and then we went on Monday, on Sunday, I should say, sorry, to the Racing Post Towers, as they call it, uh, the head office of Racing Post, and we sort of get half an hour before the board where they just sort of grill us and ask us different questions about the industry and ourselves. And then uh, the decision is made, and we go to the awards ceremony. And you've bagged it. Um, it's worth mentioning that you've, you've also like, run a betting shop at Lord's, Yes. You've got a better shop at Cheltenham. Yeah. So you've, you've, you're used to doing remote stuff as well. Yeah, when I started here, I think within the first week, I was, they were, I was told, you're doing Lords. And I was like, what do you mean you're doing Lords? Oh, we have a marquee at Lords, so for test matches and uh, one-day finals, I think it was. You can, uh, he said, well, there's someone who's doing it at the moment, so just go with them and do it. It was Norman who used to work for Bet365, great guy. I can't think, he's actually uh, on the rail at Cheltenham as well. Um, so he did it with me for the first couple of tests, I think it was, and then sort of showed me the game. What I wasn't used to was compiling the odds myself for certain things like session runs. If it wasn't to be found anywhere, kind of bands of session runs, I could find out what the session runs were, were being laid at, but I had to do it at bands. So I was always wary of that. But he always taught me, he said, just do the one you think's going to be, and then you work your way out with the prices. And he said, as long as you've got a decent percentage, don't worry about it. And if you're getting picked on one, you just cut the price on that one. You know, if that band is uh, particularly popular, it means you're probably wrong. So that was good fun. And then obviously the Sovereign Lounge in the first floor at Cheltenham Racecourse, uh, the, that was great. Matt did it for the first couple of years and then I sort of took over as well. Uh, running that is full on. You know, that, the Cheltenham Festival is brilliant. I mean, but you know you've worked at the end of it. You know, four days come and you're like, I need a rest now. But yeah, it's really rewarding though, so I enjoy doing that. Right, so finally, you, you're now Betting Shop Manager of the Year, officially. That's the pinnacle of, of your, you know, of, of how you can go, I suppose. Um, so what's next? What's your, have you got any ambitions? It's exactly what I said to the judges on Sunday when I was in my interview. I said, oh, I think I've reached the pinnacle of the uh, retail betting shop game, uh, which they seem to agree with me and you do now as well. I just want to stay here for the foreseeable future and just keep building the business, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't mind going out doing a bit of training and stuff like that, or out of town stuff, not a problem, but I want to build this up. We'll have a quiet period now, you know, there might be less people over when from the summer. If the summer we get a lot of people over, so we'll have a lot more customers. So I want to build up different parts of the shop. There's always uh, things to be done in here. So you should always keep striving to improve. And um, can you win it two years in a row? Is not allowed entry again. Oh. So there's no double up. <laughs> no. Well, anyway, James, um, absolutely fantastic achievement. Thank you very much. And thanks very much for doing the interview. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Cheers, Simon.